calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Rogues of the Black Fury, Episode 21. Rogues of the Black Fury, a novel, written and produced by Travis Heerman. This novel contains violence, adult language, and mature situations. Listener discretion is advised. For more information, please visit travisheerman.com rogues. guest performer, Danielle McCarville. For more information about Danielle, check out the Rogues of the Black Fury podcast website. Chapter 34 Bella was happy to be out of the rug, even though the chains chafed her wrists and the leash rubbed her neck raw. Being rolled up in the stiff, musty old rug with her arms pinned to her sides for several hours, barely able to breathe, was worse than being locked in her box. When they unrolled her, she was almost relieved when they clamped the manacles on her. At least she could breathe the fresh air. So many bruises, so many aches, so many degradations. One more hardly mattered, even the leash, which the one now calling himself Adon kept tied to her wrists. As their boat sluiced down the swift, rocky river, their boatmen guided it expertly past boulders and sharp crags, else they would have been dashed to pieces. Through it all, she clung to the plank on which she sat, lest the tossing of the boat throw her overboard. There was no opportunity for her to drown herself now with the leash around her neck. She would have to wait. Somewhere deep within herself, in another time and place, she would have found the riverboat ride an exhilarating adventure— but she felt little now besides despair. She could not enjoy the beauty of the mountains and the sky, even though part of her mind recognized that they were beautiful. She only vaguely recognized how different these mountains were to those of southern Cusca, as alike but yet as different as brother and sister. Cuscan peaks were sharp and high and craggy, but these mountains were rounded and worn, like the shoulders of stooped old men. The endless despair weighed upon her head and shoulders like a physical thing, a boulder around her neck dragging her head toward her knees, 
weighing upon her eyelids until she yearned for sleep or death at every waking moment. She thought about the man who had died for her. She wondered who he was. Had her father sent the armies of House Woolstone to her rescue? Her mind spun in never-ending circles, but too fuzzy with despair for her to make much sense of anything. The farther they traveled downstream, the wider and slower the river became, and the more her captors relaxed. Their relaxation grew into jubilation with each passing league, and they passed the time in ever less solemn conversation, seeming almost to forget her presence. Even the boatman paid her little attention, or if he did, he kept it to himself. She was just a chained slave girl now. For five days, they rode the river, stopping in small riverside towns to rest at night. She received only a few glances from the innkeepers and patrons. Perhaps Cuscan slave girls were not so uncommon. The babble of speech around her was incomprehensible. She understood only a few words of the farthy tongue, and those did not grant her any comprehension, just exhausted the last of her mental strength when she tried to listen. She did as she was told, and kept her gaze firmly fixed on the floor, letting her hair fall about her face, concealing her features. When the farthy men around her did pay attention to her, she did not like the looks in their eyes, and flashes of memory of the old priest's attack made her body flinch like a puppet on a string. She sometimes wondered if she looked like a simpleton. But there were no beatings now, and Adon, her longtime tormentor, seemed almost jovial, more so each day. This respite from harsh treatment did not give her any comfort regarding what was to come, however. She fully expected more degradation, perhaps rapine, perhaps torture and death. The river wound its way into the heart of a sprawling city of low, stuccoed buildings, blockish and simple, with narrow doors and narrow windows crammed tightly together. Scattered throughout were gleaming golden spires and minarets in stark contrast to the surrounding buildings, like courtesans amidst scullery maids. Here, in the lowlands, out of the mountains, the air grew hot and moist, and the surrounding countryside lay verdant with lush green and browns, fields and vegetable gardens, pastures and irrigation canals. Thick, tenacious creepers crawled over low walls and facades, lending a coolness to the heat of the day. The river meandered through the city, becoming a broad brown ribbon of commerce. Docks proliferated on the riverbanks. Riverboats and barges moved up and downstream laden with people and goods, driven by poles and skulls. She had never seen so many farthy before, and never in their native dress, going about their everyday business. When she was a child, she had imagined the atrocities that Farthy committed to their own people, priest kings flogging and stoning their subjects for obscure breaches of religious law that she would never understand, women imprisoned and abused by their husbands, living as little more than slaves, children forced into religious schools where they studied only the holy Zaraph, the Book of the Prophets, slaves taken from fringe Cuscan borderlands and chained into coffles for hard labor. Those were the stories she had grown up hearing, 
but she did not see these things now. Instead, she passed boats filled with women and children going about their business, carrying baskets of their shopping. Their clothes were modest linen robes of white and other pale muted colors, with diaphanous veils concealing their faces, their long, rich black hair tied into elaborate sculpted shapes. They looked happy, chattering away with their companions, much as she had seen Cuscan women do. Many of them were serenely, sublimely beautiful. Small, dark-eyed children clung to their mother's legs or misbehaved behind their backs. Adon cuffed her above the ear. Mind your gaze. Slaves do not look at free women. Bella kept her head down, but Adon's chastisement only made her look more, peering out from under the dangling strands of her hair. A few short men with dark, outthrust beards and deep-set dark eyes guided riverboats, bustled about their business across bridges and riverbanks, down streets and thoroughfares. She even glimpsed animals that she had only heard of before. The Farley called them yak, massive lumbering beasts almost as tall as a kalad, but with twice the bulk, a sweeping pair of horns thicker than her leg and a great hump over their shoulders. They hauled wagons and carts, much like box, but they looked far stronger and did not look as if they could stand on their hind legs. A tower rose out of the city, a smooth cylindrical stone structure capped with a crown of elaborately sculpted battlements. The river passed near the tower, and as they drew closer, she could discern a fortress-like wall surrounding the tower and a few roofs peeking over the crenellated wall. Spires of gold at the corners reached toward the sky. Something bright glinted at the summit of the tower, winking in the sunlight. A huge golden disk standing upright like a shield facing the sun. She could not judge the size for certain, but it must have been at least the height of two men. The boatman steered the craft towards a small dock at the foot of the wall surrounding the tower. Before long, they slid up to the dock in the shadow of the imposing stone wall. Her captors were barely able to contain their excitement. They stepped out onto the dock, tugging Bella along behind them, gave the boatman a handful of strange moon-shaped silver coins, and sent him on his way. The boatman bowed as he accepted the coins and glanced at the tower. Bella noticed his discomfort, like a guilty child trying to avoid the notice of a stern father, and she noted his relief as he shoved away from the dock. He sculled away much faster than he had approached. The presence of the massive wall towered over her. Naked stone steps led from the dock to a small gate hovering above the water. The faster the boatman oared away, the heavier her sense of fresh dread became. Adon jerked her leash. Welcome to your new home, slave. After being dragged through narrow passageways that smelled of ancient dust and cold stone, Bella found herself thrust into a large, quiet room cavernous, but filled with a maze of linen curtains, sumptuously padded divans, silk pillows, and young girls and women. 
those nearest her immediately turned to appraise her, expressions ranging from curiosity to indifference. Adon handed her leash to a statuesque blonde woman with flinty gray eyes. The two of them exchanged a few words, and then Adon was gone. The woman took Bella's leash and led her into the room. The door behind them slid shut, and a heavy lock clanked. The woman turned toward Bella and removed the leash, her gaze flicking up and down, studying, appraising. I am Sira she said in Cuskin, with a drawling accent that spoke of origins in the land of House Kerrigan. Her face was constructed of sharp angles and hard planes, her pale blonde hair pulled back into a tight bun. Her mouth was tight and thin, her nose sharp, and she peered down at Bella as if from a great height. I am, it doesn't matter who you are. You will be given a new name as the Master sees fit. Until then, you have no name and will be addressed simply as Cole, slave. The punishment for unruly slaves is severe, so you would be wise to obey me, and any man here who issues you an order. Sira took off Bella's leash. The master will expect you to be properly presented to him soon, so we must hurry to remove these and give you more suitable chains and clothes. She snapped her fingers and called out, Sir, sir. A girl leaped out from behind one of the many curtains and hurried forward, her wavy dark hair bouncing over her olive-skinned shoulders. She was a few years older than Bella, dressed in a thin white linen shift, tied at the shoulders, and Bella quickly noted that even though the garment completely covered the older girl's body except for her arms, the cloth was so thin revealed the shape and swell of the girl's breasts and hips with suggestive subtlety. She swallowed hard at the thought of having to wear such a garment. The girl stopped before them. Between her wrists dangled an arm length of fine golden chain. Sira said, Take coal and see that she is properly prepared for presentation to the master. The girl curtsied. Yes, Sira. Sira strode away. The girl gave Bella a wan smile. You can call me Sir-Sir. It means little fish. Her large eyes, prominent teeth, full lips, and high cheekbones indeed bore resemblance to a fish. I am, um, you are Cole, Sir said, glancing about quickly. Come, let's give you a bath and some fresh clothes. Seersir took Bella through the dark labyrinthine hallway to a smithy, where the smith broke the rivets of her manacles and replaced her clunky iron chains with a finely wrought length of gold links. If not for its purpose, she might have thought it beautiful, but it was more comfortable in any case. The leather wristbands were lighter and smoother on her chafed wrists than iron. After the smithy, Seersir took her down a series of ill-lit hallways until Bella wondered if she would spend the rest of her life out of the sun's view. The girl took her to a bathhouse with an airy vaulted ceiling and spacious pools of clear water. Sunlight filtered through the high windows just under the roof. The air was redolent with the smells of incense and soap and perfume. With a quick, practiced movement, Seersir untied her shift and let it fall to her feet. 
Bella's face flushed as she beheld the naked girl before her. Circe was beautiful, with a body far more womanly than Bella's. She stared for a moment and looked away, shuffling her feet. Circe unbuttoned the shoulders of Bella's garment and tugged it down. Bella sucked in a breath, her cheeks burned even more fiercely, and her hands moved to cover herself. Circe stood up and smiled. Don't worry, there are no men allowed here. There's just us. What is this place? Circe looked at her quizzically. This is the bathhouse. No, I mean... Circe giggled. I was just teasing. This is the high temple of the Ipsatha. Where do you come from? Norgard? Norgard? I don't know that city. Where is that? Cuska? The girl's eyes widened. Truly! You should talk to Abine. She's from Cuska. But don't let Sira hear you or any of the men. How do you know of Cuska, but not Norgard? It's the largest city in the world. Circe's lips turned into a slight pout. I'm sorry, I'm so stupid. I come from Kadath. I'm told, but I don't remember anything about it. I came here when I was very young. How did you come to be here? Circe looked about for anyone who might be listening. My father sold me to a merchant. We were very poor, and my family could not afford to raise another daughter. She led Bella toward a small pool in the corner where a basket of soap and washcloths awaited. She guided Bella into the water, which was pleasantly warm, took the soap, and began to run her hands over Bella's body. Bella quailed away from her and her ears burned with shame. Circe's face fell. I'm sorry, Bella said. I'm not accustomed to other people touching me, and I'm naked. Circe smiled and offered her the soap. Very well, you can be shy with me, but you must be thorough, or else it will be me who gets a knight in the truss. If you miss a spot, the master will know, and you must get used to being naked. Circe was such pleasant company that Bella's despair had begun to recede, but now it returned, as strong as ever. Sobs welled up, threatening to spill out, but she would not cry in front of her new friend. Circe stroked her face with an expression of heartfelt pity. This single gesture of kindness, the first in so long, smashed her facade of bravery like a cannonball. The sobs exploded out of her, and she buried her face in Circe's neck, crying uncontrollably. Circe's hair smelled like flowers and spices as she embraced Bella, holding her close as the warm water lapped at their shoulders. Thank you for listening to Rogues of the Black Fury by Travis Hearman. If you enjoy the story, don't be shy. Let me know. I would love to hear from you. And don't forget to go to this podcast's homepage and click the donate button. Give whatever you like, but is $4.99 really too much to ask for this many hours of entertainment? Rogues of the Black Fury is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I encourage you to copy it and give it away to all your roguish friends. Just don't change it or sell it, or the Black Furies will soon be coming after you.